Welcome, everybody. I am Alana. And I'm Lady. And this is Spookery. Wowie zowie, it is Spookery time. Uh, hello, spooky listeners. Welcome to another week. If you are listening to this release on a Monday, I hope that you all had a great weekend and are ready for a great week. And if you're not, I hope your week is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, if you're listening I'm... to this past release day, fuck it. Then what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> no, I get your life's busy. It's all right. You yeah. don't have to listen to it on a Monday. And we appreciate you listening regardless. You, I hope you, no matter what time of the week it is, it's good. Exactly. That's the beauty of podcast. You save up a bunch and then you binge them. You know what I mean? On, on that Friday night that you're just sitting there, whenever, whenever you feel right. I know I do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of that. It's like, I'm not going to hold that against you. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, welcome in, spooky listeners. We are excited uh, to give you this case today. Lady doesn't know what we're giving you today, but I, I not a, not a good, <laughs> but I'm excited nonetheless. <laughs> um, as as you may remember, my category that I got for this week was high profile cases, um, and it was kind of funny because after I did get this category, I was kind of like hemming and hawing about like what case I wanted to pick, and I remember like going to my husband Corey, and I was like, hey. I need to pick a case, a high-profile case, that no one's ever heard of. And he goes, Alana, say that back to yourself slowly and listen to how stupid you sound. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fair point. Um, let's let's try that again. So I, I really did. I had to take a minute to like laugh at myself. Um, but I think, I think I did manage to pick one that you haven't heard of, lady. Or if you have, it's the, another case of Bonnie and Clyde where you don't know the full story. I, I would, no matter what it is, I, I will probably be blissfully ignorant because I'm one of those people where it's like I'm kind of aware of like celebrity drama or <laughs> like media circuses, but I tend to like not pay attention to them because I want to look up like at them on my own. Yeah. So I sort of let it happen and then I forget about them and I never look into them. That's fair. So, so you will, you, I think finding a high profile case that I personally have not heard of is not that hard. That's, that's <laughs> so. all right. Well, then I'm excited to blow your mind. Um, this case, I think, will definitely do it. It is. It's a doozy. Um, the reason that I think that most people may have not heard about this high-profile case is because it is from the United States specifically. Um, it swept the nation around the 70s, um, and I'm not sure how much coverage it really received in other countries. Um, but the okay. reason that I think a lot of people might have heard about this one is because the person responsible for these heinous crimes has actually been instrumental in helping the FBI understand criminal behavior um, and ultimately has helped lay the foundation for our modern-day serial killer profiling. Are we talking about Hannibal Lecter? Pretty close. He actually inspired uh, one of the characters in Silence of the Lambs, which we will talk about later. Oh my gosh, okay. Uh, All right. We are talking about the co-ed killer. His name is Ed Kemper. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to dash your hopes, but I do know I do know Ed Kemper. Oh, okay. I, All right. I do know the co-ed killer. He's, I he's, might not he's know very it. famous. He's very famous. I also know... Um, uh, American Psycho. That's another thing that uses Ed Kemper as a basis yeah. for some of its inspiration. They do. So a lot of f fictional serial killers, I think, pull from Ed Kemper. He's. I think there's a very famous quote that he... I won't say it because I'm sure you'll talk about it very much I think I know on. exactly what quote it is and I have it in my script. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do happen to know a fair bit about Ed Kemper, but like you said, I don't think I've ever done a personal deep dive on Ed Kemper. I don't think I know all the details. I think yeah. I know his MO. I yeah. think I know his his type. And I, I know his stomping ground, but I don't know 
much else. Well, like you said, you're going to get all the detail, all the gory details today. And oh, spook me up, baby. I cannot wait. Ed Kemper, like, oh, like, what are you, that's a classic. <laughs> he is. And I was a little nervous to cover something that has been so highly covered before because there is so much information out there. So I am like a little nervous about maybe missing something because I, I consulted a lot of sources for this. But even that, I felt like... I'm just like skimming the surface, you know, like we're writing a podcast episode and there's like a million movies, uh, there's books, there's countless hours of interviews with this man. Like there's just so much. And I, I did my best to wrap it up with a nice little spookery mm. bow and I'm going to present it to you guys. I'm, I'm so excited. I feel like this is a really, really good one. It, it, like you said, it is a bit like a, it's a high profile that a lot of people kind of like don't know about because he kind of got overshadowed with uh, with killers like John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. He, like compared to them he's very pg it's yeah it's weird like you said comparatively like on the list of like high profile killers like serial killers he's not one that is talked about all the time like but he did mm -hmm. lay the foundation for so many things not just in law enforcement but in in media and pulp culture like like we were talking about like there's so many characters that are based off of him that literally quote mm -hmm. things that he said like it's oh yeah it's crazy I, yeah, and I think there's also, there's Ed Gein as well, and like he overshadows Ed Kemper a lot because everyone's like, oh, the famous Ed serial killer, like, oh yeah, Ed Gein, and it's like, no. We're going to talk about him too today. It's kind of, oh not, not a lot of details, but just, he, like, they, things that like, because they, they honestly were active serial killers at the same time, so mm -hmm. there, there was a lot of like overshadowing and like, like who's, who, what victim belonged to who, they were, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a lot, so a lot well i cannot wait i want please tell me the entire complete abridged history of our boy ed kemper i i'm so excited all right um but real quick before we jump into everything i am going to give a trigger warning for this episode kind of early on because there are a lot of things in this episode and i just want to make sure that either if this is something that you're comfortable listening to that it, you are in the right headspace for it or if these are topics that are just not for you this is your opportunity to go ahead and duck out um we all will try to do our best I, I tried to go through and kind of mark the areas with them so hopefully if you are listening and it's just something you don't want to hear about you can skip past those specific spots um but some of it is kind of just meshed in with the story um, but with that being said uh, this case today will include graphic descriptions of injury, animal cruelty, sexual assault, cannibalism, and necrophilia. Uh, I, I really do. I understand these topics are difficult ones, and I understand that this episode's not for you. If that's the case, we will see you next week for a Ladies' Cult episode, which apparently has no trigger warnings, so... <laughs> yet. 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 I don't wanna, it's early. I don't want to speak it's too early. soon. <laughs> But. but that's for later. And don't worry, guys, of course, I like I, like I always do, I always make sure that all of the trigger warning times are in the description. They're the first thing that you see. So if you are interested, but you're not super comfortable with certain topics, all of the timestamps are always down at the bottom. You'll know exactly where they're coming up and you can skip ahead as you need, but they'll always be there. That's like, it's a spooker guarantee. A spooker guarantee. I like that. All right. <laughs> so all before right. we jump into... Ed's life, uh, I will give a little bit of context. So I mentioned that uh, Ed, like I said, has kind of been very instrumental in laying the foundation for serial killer profiling. Um, criminal profiling is actually defined, for those that don't know, uh, by the FBI as a, a technique used to identify the perpetrator of a violent crime by identifying the personality and behavioral characteristics of the offender based upon an analysis of the crime committed. Um, so basically building that that profile for who they think the killer is. They, they have the evidence, they don't know who they're looking for, but they're using the clues that they have to try to build that profile to try to find, to help it make it easier to find that person. 
Um, yeah, I think like a common examples of like criminal profiling. It's like they attack this person at this time of day, and they were seen in this car. So that probably means that they had issues with their parental thing. They're 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 violent in this regard. It's like taking very small physical clues of crimes that we know and trying to make it reflect some sort of psyche. And they're usually very fucking spot on. Yeah, they, when when done by professionals, they are like you said. They are very. They can be very accurate, and they can be very good tools to help locate the the perpetrator yeah or at least give you a better understanding of why they are behaving the way that they are and it's a very fascinating like whole branch of science and like especially when there is an active serial killer going on they can say hey this is the kind of victim we're looking out for if you fit this profile you stay home because this is you're probably you're at risk so that's 100 percent. it can be really helpful in a lot of ways yeah stay safe out there exactly um, but yeah, this is something that, like you said, it's so it's almost so commonplace now. We basically, I think, kind of can't think of true crime without automatically kind of making those killer profiles in your head when you start hearing mm-hmm. all all the clues to things or all the pieces. I mean, we sat there on your Hinter Kaifect episode and really sat, and we were criminal profiling. We were thinking, who we have all these pieces of evidence. Who does this? Who do we think fits this profile? And that's yeah. we kind of did that without even really talking about. That's what we were doing. It was just theorizing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So again, it's just, it's so commonplace now. Um, And while some aspects of criminal profiling have been used since the 1800s on famous cases like Jack the Ripper, its role in law enforcement wasn't really prominent until the 1960s and 70s. Um, It wasn't really taken seriously as a practice. And even now it's still highly debated by a lot of people. There's some law enforcement Mm -hmm. officials that are just like, no, it's not helpful. It's a waste of time. It's pseudoscience. You know, let's make way for the real professionals. And I'm not a law enforcement professional. I don't know. It seems helpful from a civilian standpoint, but again, I'm not... I don't know. I think it really does vary from case to case and like there are certain things that get tied together that shouldn't have been tied together kind of like Hinterkaifeck you know like what's the newspaper in all of this and there are certain cases where like it it really was just an off the wall heat of the like passion no amount of profiling is going to explain this and then there are other times where it's like this is deep rooted behavior and we we really need someone qualified to come forward and do this and I think that's also a part of the issue is that a lot of people sometimes people who do these profiles they're not qualified yeah that's a huge part of it like you said people just kind of spitballing ideas or kind of thinking they know what they talk about they're self-proclaimed professionals if you will and that can be a problem it sure can. But yeah, when it is done right, it can be a really helpful tool. Um, and um, Ed Kemper, like I said, was a major source for investigators to interview him and really find out like the why behind a vicious killer. So they had all his crimes laid out. They had all the clues laid out. And then they had this person who was actually willing to talk about the why to really help put the pieces of all that puzzle together. And so that's kind of mm-hmm. what, like I said, helped them build that foundation and go, all right, we have this person, like you said, that had parental issues at home that like there's there's other things that we see now where they're like violence against small animals at a young age you know things like that that now we go oh yep that's an that's an identifier of someone that could have problems later on you know and and he's i think the reason that these things exist is it's really started with him being willing to talk about these things because before yeah killers were not saying he's not crazy but killers were very crazy about the way they went about things he was as we will find out, very smart. I mean, like, in the 70s as well, like, the serial killer thing, like, wasn't really a thing. Like, people didn't throw that term around, because, it, like, it only really started, like, people only, like, were like, well, maybe there's someone who could kill multiple people. Yeah. And, it, like, the word even, like, serial killer, I don't think even was coined at this time. I don't think, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, Kemper was before that they coined the term. But after Kemper was kind of like, 
Maybe we should come up with a term for this. Yeah, no, it's, I just looked it up because I was curious. The term serial murder was popularized in the 1970s by Robert Ressler, an investigator with the Behavioral Science Unit of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. So Bam, it's hand connected. In hand. It's Whoa. connected. It's around this time. I don't know it's if all connected. in headlines of Kemper, it was. It probably wasn't used at the beginning, but like you said, later on after he was like actually like the trial and everything, he's probably one of the reasons that this coin, this term was coined. So, this coin was termed. This coin was termed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, he, like I said, just very instrumental. That's the reason I decided to place this in this category specifically, because as we heard from the trigger warnings, this really could fall into a lot of different cases. It's, yeah. It's a lot. So, uh, yeah. Edmund Kemper himself uh, is most known for his vicious murders during, starting in 1964 all the way to 1973, where he did take the lives of 10 victims. 10? He killed 10 people? 10 people. I didn't realize it was that many. I didn't think it was that many. I thought he had, like, hit five. No. I, wow. All in all, 10 people, including a 15-year-old girl. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. Eddie boy. Yeah. It's... He was not a good guy. He was not a no. good guy. No, he was not. Um, the crazy thing is, he is actually currently still alive, serving a life sentence in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. Did I say it? Vacaville? California? Vacaville? Yep. Sure. That sounds... Yep. I think I... Yes, Vacaville. I put it later in my thing. Yep. <laughs> Vacaville. Uh, Vacaville. I, I didn't know he was still alive. I didn't either, I, actually. I legit thought... Why did I... I was convinced that it, like someone got him in prison. He's 74 years old right now. He is actually, scary fact, he is next eligible for parole in 2024. Oh, no, don't like that. Nope, nope, don't like that. (laughs) Nope, don't like that. That's a a no for me. That's a not-so-fun fact for you before we jump I didn't know he was eligible for parole. We should really, like, look at that. That's, yeah, I will talk about it later, but just due to, like, the laws at the time in California when he was sentenced, there was no way to sentence someone to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So that was, it was just due to the time that he was sentenced. Now, I don't know if that's changed, to be perfectly honest with you. I didn't look that up. Um, but he's been denied. He's he's tried a lot. He's not getting out. Um, no. We hope. As, as you should not. Yes, we hope. But that is... As the grandfather of forensics, I do not think he should get out. <laughs> I do, right? Yes, I don't. I just, in my professional opinion, I don't think so. Yeah. My self-proclaimed professional opinion. In my not-so-professional opinion, I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that is all the context you are going to get on Ed for now. We're going to start with his early life and just work our way through the through the years tell me about baby ed kemper so december 18th 1948 in burbank california that is our setting i mean not too long after bonnie and clyde's incident to be honest yeah it's it's kind of kind of talent he was born right after that he didn't know but uh edmund kemper was born to clarnell elizabeth kemper and edmund emil kemper jr Okay. Long name. Yeah. Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. Ed, Ed, Ed um, Kemper is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ed was the middle child between his two sisters, Alan Lee Kemper and Susan Huey Kemper. At the time of Ed's birth, the family was living in North Hollywood, California. Ed's parents were 27 and 29, respectively. Okay. They were just an average suburban family by the looks of it. Um, however, one thing kind of made them stand out right off the bat. When Ed was born, Ed weighed 13 pounds. For context, the the average human baby is between five and eight pounds. That's a big baby. That's a big that's baby. A that's big a baby. Giant... As a as a ten yeah, pound he... baby myself, respectively. That's a big baby. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big baby. <laughs> he was a chonker. Um, and, and yeah, just Man. big. I mean, I cannot even imagine actually. 
like jeez by the eighth how big was genuinely. how big was his mom i feel like <laughs> in my head she's really <gasps> small and it's just this potato it's just like this is a big baby <laughs> I think they were all average size from what I can remember. But honestly, I, I'm, that's got to be in the recap episode now. I'm going to look up how big his whole family yeah. was. Because maybe they were a family of giants and that was average for them. But his sisters, I don't think, were that big. Um, big baby. Big baby. Big baby. Uh, but by the age of four, he was already a whole head taller than his peers. So he grew fast. At only 15 years old, he was six foot four inches and as an adult he would peak at the appalling six foot nine oh so his my god he was a literal giant oh my um, god what i did not know he was six that, nine. <laughs> i just had to start with that fact because it's it really like that that fact alone plays so heavily into like his life and like i just i feel like who he was as a person because right off the bat he was like so intimidating but also like this is someone who does not like he doesn't hide in a crowd he's towering over the crowd like he stood out people knew him like visually you would be like oh yeah that's ed he's the one guy who's taller than the entire fucking state of burbank or city of burbank guess what guess what they called him big ed big ed Big Ed. That was that was his nickname of it. Like Big Ed. He was it was big. He was gigantic. Huge fucking boy. Yes, he he was really big. Oh my god, that's but, so um, scary. Yeah, I'm not gonna jump ahead to his end of his life too much. I do want to talk about Ed's parents a little bit more. Um, so we'll start with Mr. Kemper himself, Ed's father. Uh, he had enlisted in the army in June of 1939 to help the U.S. fight in World War II. He and Clarnell married on November 26, 1942 in Great Falls, Montana. Um, and after the war ended in 1945, he had a position where he was doing atomic bomb testing in the Pacific Proving Grounds. Oh, just casually? So, just casually. He was just like, yeah, I'll just, you need me to do some bomb testing? I got you. Yeah. I'll test those bombs. Yeah. Yeah, and so things things were really going good for them at the time, but eventually Edmund Jr. would return to California where he would find work as an electrician. And his wife hated it. Clarnell would constantly complain. She would berate her husband for his quote-unquote menial job. It became it became like a a thing in their relationship. Yeah. It was a problem. He, he used to do, I guess, all these exciting things, and she's just like, now you're just in a boring electrician. Why does this kind of, like, it's a weirdly reminiscent of my last case with, you know, Marcin going, you're boring now. And it's like, it's, it's it is a form of abuse, you know, if your partner is belating you for, like, wanting a quieter life, like, no, that's bad. Is is a red flag. Yeah. That is a red flag. Edmund himself later stated that suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. So she was a piece of work. Yeah. Like, okay. It, it got bad. All right. It wasn't just you're boring. It was it was bad. So. All right, Clarnell. Just to kind of, yeah, just to give you some more context on that whole situation, it obviously brings us to Ed's mom, um, Clarnell, or Clara, as some people, I, I guess, called her. Um, she was not really the nicest woman, to say the least, um, though I definitely don't think she ends up deserving what happens to her. Kind of some foreshadowing there. Um, she was described as a violent alcoholic, and it was alleged that she had borderline personality disorder however that was not actually proven but i mean yeah it's not that far of a stretch um like i said she had no problem being very vocal about her disdain for her husband's career as well as i'm sure many other things anything probably that didn't go her way she was very emasculating was the big word especially during the 70s oh yeah and then going into the 80s with that like oh yeah rough 
yeah. So, uh, due to the constant fighting, Ed's parents actually separated pretty early on in 1957. Okay. Um, and Clarinell would make the decision as a single mother to bring her three children back to her childhood home in Helena, Montana, to raise them there. Okay. So, it, like you said, didn't even make it that far. It was 1950s in there. She, he was just like, mm-mm, I'm out. Yeah. I'm off. I'm, I'm going to go start another life. Eventually, he goes and he has another wife and just starts basically again. Uh, she moves back to Montana, where I believe her family is, to just raise her kids there because it's probably easier to be close to family. Yeah. As a single, mother. a single mother in the 50s. Yeah, 1957, that was, like you said, she was, I mean, like, kind of almost kudos to her for not sticking in something that she was unhappy with, because a lot of women at the time oh, yeah. probably wouldn't you have done stuck. that, but it also sounds like she was the problem, yeah. so I I don't know, <laughs> like, Yeah, but it's, but it's you also that. have to look at the, the, the husband and being, how easy, like, I mean, I don't know how long they were with, in total, from the 40s to the 50s, that's 10 years, but, like, being able to just completely yeah. start over again, that that is telling. Yeah, it always, but I, like that was so common at the time, though. It, like a lot, a lot of men did that, or just had second families. So that was a very common. This, thing yeah, too. this is the fifties. <laughs> this is the fifties. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to point fingers. I don't think anyone's right or wrong no, in the situation. It just happened. I think it was a shitty situation the whole way around. Literally, I just yeah, there's two people that shouldn't have been together, started a family, and at this point they're stuck together. So yeah, um, it was it was pretty devastating because um, young Ed at the time was only seven or eight, and he he had a pretty close relationship with his father. So this this really did just kind of I, I mean this was the person he was closest with in the world, and now he's moving to a completely different state from California to Montana, and his father's just kind of like all right bye have a good life yeah but as a seven-year-old you know being the only other male in the house that's exactly it he kind of became the male of the house at a very young age um and so that just you know really made his relationship with his mom it was already a bit strained but that separation and kind of that like burdening on his shoulders made things even more tense between the two Mm -hmm. of them and subsequently his sisters as well as we'll see um at the age of only 10, Ed was forced by his mother to live in the basement away from his sisters because she actually feared that he might harm them. Oh. Uh, now, I am, I'm not condoning this, but I think in her own fucked up way, she really was just trying to do what was best for all of them. She has the son who is twice the size of a kid his age. Um, and at this time, I, again, I'm not condoning this, but Ed had already kind of picked up some rather concerning habits. Okay. Um, he had a pretty wild imagination and he would let it go to some pretty dark places he would coerce his sisters into playing um one of his favorite games that he called gas chamber okay yeah um like i said this is young young ed at 10 where he would have his sisters blindfold him and then lead him to a chair where he would pretend to writhe in agony until he was quote-unquote dead um yeah, yeah, you know, that's I don't know what kind of game that is, but this it, it's it's almost like Albert Fish. I don't know if you're familiar with Albert Fish at all, the gray man. He would make games with his kids where uh, they would harm him. So he was always the subject of of harm, of being the the, the one that quote unquote died or was was maimed or hurt in some way. And Albert Fish took it to the <clears throat> nth degree. You know, he actually had like his kids like hit him with paddles and you know like and everything yeah oh my god but it, like it, the behavior okay. i mean the, the behavior is similar it like it's very that's like where my brain went to immediately i was like oh like albert fish albert fish is a completely other category he who that's a who yeah. that's all the kettle of worms that, but it's like i wonder like is that I, w- I wonder if that's like 
how common that really is like you said where not only like are they having these fantasies but in, but they have like there's something to having someone else act them out on yeah, them and it, it's like they so they can see it through the victim's eyes almost yeah. like there's something it's, i don't i don't know i don't know what it is to look into for sure like is it is it something where someone who inflicts great harm on someone else is it because they're fantasizing that they're, like they're the ones that actually want to be hurt and they're just inflicting it upon others or is it that they're trying to like live vicariously through their victims yeah i i on it it could go either way and i'm sure it changes depending on the scenario yeah. depending on who we're talking about in this case yeah. i'm sure we'll we'll get into we'll the, the end to make whole breakdown later yeah. but it's like it's just an interesting like oh i've seen this behavior before in another serial killer who had very similar tendencies to kemper yeah, no, that's interesting because I hadn't heard about fish, but like you said, that's an episode for another day. It sure is. <laughs> um, so in addition to his favorite game, the gas chamber, uh, he loved to cut the heads off of his sister's dolls, and that curiosity, for lack of a better term, would eventually lead him to the family cats. Oh, no. Um, and this is also going to be our first little trigger warning. Um, if you don't want to hear about animal cruelty, completely respect that. Go ahead and cut down to the next little area. Um, at just 10 years old, he buried the family cat alive. He then would dig it up and put its head, he decapitated it and put its head on a stake. Oh my god. That's fucked up. Yeah, that was, that was just the first one. Then, at the age of 13, he actually escalated to killing his own pet cat with a machete, and he hid its remains in his closet, which his mother would later find. Oh! So I'm again. She had him sleeping in the basement at this point. I'm sure that this did just this didn't help the fear of him. To be honest with you, so I again I'm not condoning what yeah. she did, but I also don't know how I would deal with my son who was bigger than me probably, and he's running around beheading cats. I don't I don't know how I would handle that. Yeah, it's it's just it's extra spread on the shit sandwich is all it is. Like it is just it's a bad situation and. It was a like it was an unfamiliarity. It was people who were in a situation that they weren't equipped to be in, in both sides, and it just it just escalated. It did. It, it like you said, it absolutely escalated, and um, yeah, it's just unfortunate. Yeah. So, all right, welcome back from the trigger warning part. Um, the in 1962, when Ed had just turned 14, uh, he decided to run away from the home to reunite with his father back in California. He decided, I'm I'm done here with my mom. I'm done sleeping in the basement. I'm going to go back to my dad Fair. and live with him. Sure. So um, he would find that upon arriving at his father's house, his dad had a new family. Um, he had remarried and now had a new stepson. And his dad's new wife did not like Ed. Uh, she pretty much would complain of like headaches, even just like seeing him and being around him. Like she was like physically repulsed oh. by his presence to the point that like... It, it, like, I can't imagine as a kid having an adult, like, react like that to yeah, you. Yeah, and that, what, more um, shit on the shit sandwich, it really is. Yeah, so, so he arrives, and his dad's not happy to see him. His wife literally, like, looks at him and just goes in the other room to throw up. That's um, not the warmest welcome in the world. Yeah. So, um, the heartbreak as well as, like, finding out that you've quote-unquote been replaced literally like you said that's he's like i'm my dad's son he'll be so happy to see me and he gets there and there is literally a new boy in his place yeah. like who's who's getting all of that love that he feels belongs to him exactly yeah no it was i'm sure that was gut-wrenching um so edmund jr allowed his son to stay with them temporarily while he made arrangements for him so i think it kind of at this point became a thing where he, he called clarnell and was like hey 
your boy's here. He's not my son. And she's kind of like, well, I don't want him either. So together, they kind of decided that the best thing for him was to go live with his paternal grandparents on their ranch. So that is Edmund Jr.'s parents, um, which their names are Edmund Emil Kemper Sr. And his wife, Maud Matilda Kemper. Right. And they had a ranch up in Norfolk, California. And that is where Ed would be sent. So he pretty much, like I said, was just kind of being hot potatoed around. No one, no one really wanted him, and I'm sure he felt. Yeah, and, and and it's, so. it's it's such a shitty situation for a kid to go on. So like, and you know, we're allowed to feel bad for Baby Ed because like, right as of right now, you know, yes, he's harmed animals, but he's 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 in need of help, and he's not getting it, and he's I'm sure he's feeling horribly abandoned. So, like, you know, yeah. No, like you said, that's all, I mean, all you can really think is that these things are, like, cries for help in their own way, and he's just, like, receiving no yeah, assistance. he's just... No he's guidance. Getting, he has no father figure. He has yeah, no... Yeah, he's getting pushed further away from the people he's asking help from. And it's, yeah, literally, he he went from Montana to California by himself at the age of 14, finally gets there, and his dad is just kind of like, yeah, go live with your grandparents. Like, that that genuinely, I, I can't even, like you said, I, I know I'm, I'm not trying to victimize him in the yeah. slightest, but I just as a kid going through that, that, that is pivotal, yeah. pivotal time. It is, him. and it's like, like I said, we're, we're 100% allowed to feel bad for baby Ed, because yeah. right now, he's baby Ed, he's not the, the serial killer, Ed Kemper, but when that turn happens. Yes, and that, that turn is coming up oh in this next part, so. Oh, fun. Yeah, I'm like, get, get all those feeling bad out because you're about to not feel bad yeah. anymore. The, the, the sympathy ends here. This it is, is the sympathy just... wall. Leave it at the door. No sympathy from this point onwards. You have That's, been warned. It, truly, yeah, this is it. Um, so as you can imagine, he Ed also hated living with his grandparents. Um, he would describe his grandfire, grandfa, grandfather... His grandfather. <laughs> Ed would describe his grandfather as senile and his grandmother... He said that she was basically just constantly emasculating him and his grandfather. Again, he goes from this household with his mom, where that's what she's doing, and he moves right back in with his grandma, who kind of has that same yeah, authority in the household. She runs a very tight ship, and he at one point even called her his warden. Like he's, he's like, this felt like prison, and she was my warden. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Like I said, basically went from one situation to another that just completely mirrored it. Um, during the time that he lived with his grandparents, uh, he did try to pick up a new hobby, um, hunting. Ed already kind of had a liking for firearms before moving out with his grandparents, but now, being in an environment, you know, on a farm that kind of, mm-hmm. like, encouraged this behavior, he would take an even greater interest in firearms. Um, and at the t- at first, it kind of seemed like, you know, his grandfather did try to encourage this hobby, and it was kind of something that they bond over, um, his grandfather went as far as to even buy him his own rifle and was like yeah let's like go out hunting together um but ed like i said he he said he liked hunting but really he just liked killing he began to shoot animals birds other small rodents i'm sure that he found just needlessly like his grandparents would find just dead animals just out on the farm that he just shot for no reason hunting for sport rather than for for food Exactly. Um, so that eventually led his grandmother to confiscate the gun, which, of course, Ed was not happy about. That was, yeah. a, I think, probably his one thing he did really enjoy, and sh- here she is taking that away from him. Yeah. So, August 27th, 1964. You know if I'm giving you a date, it's probably not for a good reason. No, they are very... Dates are never good. <laughs> no, the minute you hear one, it's kind of like, all right, what happened? So, it was a normal day at first. Kemper's grandfather was out running errands at the grocery store in town. 
Um, and his grandfather or grandmother was in the kitchen working on a writing project for a local newspaper, I think it said. Uh, and Kemper was actually sitting at the table with her. An argument, I guess, ensued after he was staring at her with what was described as a disgusted and horrifying look on his face, apparently probably one that he had given her before, and she was like, wipe, wipe that look off your face, don't look at me like that. And I can like hear it in my head of an old lady like being like, don't, don't you look at me in that tone of voice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so during this argument, Kemper became pretty irate, uh, and he went off and retrieved that confiscated rifle and was originally planning on going out rabbit hunting. Though, while his grandmother sat at the kitchen table, she yelled out to him, Oh, you'd better not be shooting the birds again. And those were reportedly her last words. From the porch, Kemper raised his rifle at the back of her head and fired twice through the screen door. Maud slumped forward on the table, and he would shoot her again in the back. It was reported that he then wrapped her head in a towel and dragged her body into the bedroom, where he would proceed to stab her three more times as well. Wow. Kemper would later say, I didn't think she was dead, and I didn't want her to suffer any longer. Oh my god. Yep. The, the overkill of it all. It was pretty grisly for... A, he's 15. 15, and just the, the rage. He, the rage behind this. There was a lot of pent-up aggression. Uh, later that day, when his grandfather returned home from grocery shopping, Ed went out into the driveway to meet him. Edmund Sr. smiled and waved at his grandson, and turned around to start unloading his things from his truck. In Ed's own words, when he turned, I placed the rifle about 30 inches from the back of his head and shot him. Kemper later explained that he didn't want his grandfather to see what he had done to his wife of 50 years, and that he would be angry for Kemper with what he had done. So wow. that is almost like he does this really grisly thing and then turns around and has like a, a true 15 year old reaction I feel like of just like I don't I don't want to get in trouble for this and it was yeah. he didn't actually want to kill his grandfather it sounds like it was just kind of like I, I didn't want him to see that I killed his wife like I don't want him to go through that and then he'd be mad at me I don't want him to be mad at me yeah like that was my first like the fact that he only shot him he shot his grandfather just once right just once yep it really is like I he got out the aggression that he needed to get out and then he was like oh shit I'm gonna get in so much trouble for this not the not the official reaction of I killed my grandmother it's I'm gonna get in trouble yeah, it is. It's a very juvenile response of just like, oh, oh my gosh, this was this was wrong. I, I did something bad. Yeah. Um, like, I've got to hide the evidence, and the best way to hide the evidence is to kill a witness. And, yeah, that's exactly what he did. That's so, so sad. The, but the, the care and, like, I guess the... It's it's the, the dichotomy of it all, of, like, just the, the rage that he inflicted upon his grandmother. And then, like, it was almost like a mercy killing for his that's, grandfather. I know. That's really what it was. Like, him just saying, like, I just... I didn't want him to have to, like, go through that heartache of, like, seeing his wife dead. Like, and it's just kind of like, okay. Like, I don't know how to feel about that because you literally cold-blooded killed two people. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. It is, like, a, it's a it's a mercy killing, I guess. I don't know. It's yeah, very strange. It, there's, 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 there's no better word for it, unfortunately. But, yeah, it's so strange. It's so strange just... And I, I guess this is where you start seeing that first, like, it's just going to get worse from here and you can see who he's got anger towards. Oh, yeah. And it just, it just built. Yeah, it was, like you said, best... best case scenario best described as a mercy mer, uh, mercy killing yeah. um, but after after the whole thing Kemper dragged his grandfather's body into the garage washed the blood from his hands with the garden hose uh, he also tried to clean the blood near the truck 
I'm assuming with the same hose. Um, and then, unsure of what to do next, he did what most kids would do. He called his mom. He told his mom, or his mom told him to call the police, and he did. And he sat, and he waited for them to arrive and take him into custody. Man, it's such a... It's such a, like, a, a teenager response, right? It's so, it's so, it's such a juvenile response of going, okay, I'm not going to get in trouble, but I might get in trouble still because someone's going to find this. What do I do? Yeah, literally. He, he just calls his mom. He's like, mom, he, he doesn't even like his mom, but he calls his mom and says, mom, what do I do? Because that's, he's just so lost. Yeah. And just, man, he's just a kid. He's a yeah, fucked up kid, but he's just a kid. It's, it is, it's. Literally, this this his crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit. Yeah. Uh, after his arrest, he was asked why he did it, and Kemper simply and chillingly said he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill. I, I don't know how much weight I put in that. You know? I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 once again, it feels like a juvenile response. Like, why did you do such a horrible thing? It's like, oh, I better come up with something. Why did I do that? And I, cause I yeah, can't just literally. say I got mad. Yeah, exactly. He needs like a, like a better reason, I guess. I don't know. I, that's, I mean, no, there's no, there is no right answer, I guess. It's, oh, Eddie boy. Life has many doors, Ed boy. It, it does. So after, after this whole thing, he was sent to Atascadero Youth Authority of California for his offenses, where he would stay from 1964 to 1969, so from the age of 15 to the age of 21. During his stay, he would undergo several psychiatric examinations, uh, and the doctors were initially, they diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, but their reports contradicted that diagnosis by stating that Kemper showed, quote-unquote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. Yeah, this sounds like classic 50s diagnosis of we don't know what mental health is, so we'll just stick a schizophrenic label on that and call it a day. That's exactly really what it was. Um, during his testing, it was actually also revealed that Kemper possessed an unusually high IQ. So initial testing measured him at about 136, which is over two standard deviations above average, However, later testing gave him a much higher result of at least 145. So this, to me, sounds like the taller he got, the higher his IQ rose. It had to compensate. <laughs> it did, yes. yes. His, his brain was further in the air. I don't know. Uh, there was something with, elevated. The, with gravity. He was closer to the, like, the, the aerial waves. He's just like, six foot nine, that translates to exactly 135. I don't know. Yeah, it's a, yeah I don't know. He, but he was... At 15, he was testing this high, so he really was yeah. a very intelligent kid, despite his rather dark imagination. Yeah. Um, so because of his di like all of his testing and everything, they would later re-diagnose him with personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type, oh. which is a phrase or label that is not actually used in current day. It's it's an outdated term. Yeah. Um, but back then, it was described as involving a pervasive pattern of negative negativistic attitudes and passive resistance to demands for adequate performance in a variety of contexts so it was characterized by procrastination covert obstructionism inefficiency and stubbornness sounds like me. which honestly I, yeah i'm like <laughs> i fit all of these as i was reading this i was kind of like oh my god if that's what i would have been labeled as insane yeah but Jesus. like that's like a very low like, I don't know, it's like, we're all a little passive-aggressive, I feel like. I don't yeah, know, maybe like, we're not, stubbornness? But... Like, 
like if if it's, if stubbornness is done correctly, it's called tenacity. Like if yeah, right. like if, like these are these are traits where it's just like oh you didn't apply the way that we wanted you to, so we're just gonna call you stubborn and like that's it. And that's exactly it. Is it's the pa- quote like he said passive resistance to demands for adequate performance in a variety of contexts. So it's like well who deems what adequate is? And also variety of contexts. That's so broad. <laughs> that's literally just in life when we just decide you're yeah. not adequate anymore. You are crazy. Like I, it was just like a really like yeah. broad. And this is why it's outdated now. Is it just doesn't fit into any of. People are like, this is not how we categorize no. people. This is not. This is not it. Yeah, it's um, man, man, oh man. So yeah, they back then the cause for this was usually attributed to specific childhood stimuli. So they kind of blamed it on alcohol, drug addicted parents, or bullying and abuse. I thought you were gonna so, say alcohol and drug addiction for him, but I was like, ah, uh, you know, baby boy Kemper, <laughs> knocking back no. the bottle. <laughs> and, oh, thank goodness, right? I think that probably would have made this a lot worse, to yeah, be honest with you, man. Um, no, but they were trying to blame it kind of on his, his upbringing here. They were like, e-, and, and I don't know if like I, they kind of took him seriously because I don't think his mom would have outed herself as like I am a violent alcoholic. But at the same time, I don't think they would have really taken his word for it had he gone like, yeah, my mom's not very nice to me. You know, I, th- like, I think it's also a '50s response. You're like, oh, the kid's acting out of whack. Must be a terrible mother. Yeah, it is. That also, like you said, just like that's like the the blanket. They can just kind of throw that and like feel good about that at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not really anything. And yeah, and now we know, of course, you no know, modern day. Just because you have a shitty upbringing doesn't make you a killer. There's a, like thousands and thousands of people who have awful parents, people like who should never have crossed paths, and unfortunately, they were assigned to each other at birth. And they they are amazing people. They're they're pillars of the, of the society. They're they're not born killers just because you have a shitty parent does not make you a killer so and that's exactly what they were trying to say in the situation like you said they're just like no like this family life was bad it's gonna produce bad children and that's why this happened and i mean it it was scary because at the time like it kind of sounded pretty spot on for him but it's also just like that's such a lazy way to categorize everything and think about it like it's a it's a very vague diagnosis and because it's so vague it fits and it made Exa- that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, and it made a bunch of people like, in lab fits. coats feel real good about themselves. They're like, "Done it again. We've diagnosed another schizophrenic. High five. Let's go to the bar." <laughs> that's that is literally like, ma'am. That's exactly it. It's like you were there. Uh, you know, maybe I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was lab coat technician number four. <laughs> <laughs> number four. Oh my gosh, we'll see it in the credits at the end. Uh, it's a great movie, oh. guys. You should see it. <laughs> but um. But anyway, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, I honestly, I don't know which, Ed Kemper loved his time being incarcerated. He thrived being in this, like, environment. Um, Despite his own diagnosis, Kemper would prove himself to be a model prisoner and actually became endeared by his psychiatrist to the point, like, that this blew my mind. He actually would eventually be trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. Oh, that sounds like a good idea, right? That, you know, I I personally wouldn't have made that choice, but this is the 50s, baby, and we get, uh, you got a little stamp card, the more psych- uh, schizophrenics you can diagnose, you get a free donut at the end of the day, woo! We'll, ha- we'll have crazy diagnose crazy, it makes perfect sense, you it's know? a perfect system, Who could, what could go wrong? The, the, oh, um, well, this is actually, we'll, we'll talk about it, but this is really where Kemper started to learn how to game the system, because he was a part of the system. Yeah, When crazy. you're the one giving the test, you know the answers to the test, that's crazy how that works. Yeah, my life is... <laughs> The TA so, in high school was great because I, t- I scored the tests I also had to take. <laughs> it, 
That's exactly what was happening. So because of his intelligence and his ability, he was proving to be quite a valuable aid in psychological testing and research, or so it seemed. Um, yeah, it was it was bad. Um, Kemper claimed to have developed some new tests himself and even some new skills. Um, so there was the Minnesota multi multifacet personality inventory, which is something he claims credit to, um, and specifically an overt hostility scale, um, which is something he also helped work on. Okay. During yeah, during his work with these psychiatrists, um, he also would he he just spent a lot of time learning, and he would even go on to become a member of Junior Chamber Commerce. Sure. Yeah. Let's put him in charge of money too. That sounds like a great yeah, idea. Like, it, it was kind of crazy, like just how much freedom and how much responsibility he was allotted, having just killed his two grandparents. Like he was, um, they they were literally looking at him and like he was their model inmate. They're like, yeah, he's schizophrenic, but we diagnosed him and we're gonna make him better. Yeah, we diagnosed him and now he's diagnosing others. Literally, like it was the perfect like let's let's show our investors this this success story. Yeah, you know, and it, so. it, it, it it's awful because it, this actually proves that he would have thrived if put in the right environment but he was never put in the right environment he if he had been if they if these quote-unquote our armchair uh, you know fucking these these lab coat technicians four five seven and three if they had like adopted ed kemper and they're like all right you're now lab coat technician number eight and we've got a special thing for you and they had just kept him there as yeah we know you're a murderer. We know you're a, you're a quote-unquote diagnosed schizophrenic. But you know what? That just means that you're able to identify all of these other things. And he just, like, stayed there. He could have done a lot of good. Yeah, honestly, I, I think so. I, I think that, like, him being so willing at a young age to contribute. Because I think there probably at a young age was a part of him that maybe even wanted to make up for kind of what he had done. Yeah. So he's like, if I can contribute positively somehow based off of the, the mistakes that I've made maybe that would be good but like you said he was just never given that opportunity like time and time again as we will see like he did kind of try to do some good things and he was told no you cannot yeah and it's it, it, you know i saw it a lot when i was in high school a lot of people who were kind of lost or didn't know where they wanted to be in society they they thrived when they were put in a very structured institution so in this case at Kemper's yeah. versus in prison but you see some of those stories like the military you know, when someone is given structure if they're given purpose if they're given like you're actively helping by doing this like it can make the world of good but unfortunately i as i as i feel like the story is going as soon as his time was up they were like all right thanks for diagnosing all these schizophrenics buddy boy out you go back back you go uh, you're not too far off oh. yeah uh, it was it was pretty bad. Yeah. So, like you said, the, the favor he curated among his doctors and his manipulation of the psychi- psychiatric tests, that, that was enough to grant him parole on his 21st birthday, uh, December 18th, 1969. And uh, the last report from his probation officer, we will say, uh, read, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had an initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illness. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expungement of his juvenile records. 
Okay, so basically, this guy is like, guys, we cured schizophrenia. He's, he's we done it. Our vague diagnosis yeah. cured. You called it. Like, that was exactly what happened. Like, they were, like, patting them. Before he even left, they were patting themselves on the back of, like, guys, we did it. Job well done. Yeah. Saved another one. That's great. Like, forget about the two murders. Let's just put make him president let's just go let's yeah we cured it. stars all around yeah. baby we did it everyone gets a free yeah. donut let's go so yeah just wow honestly is all i had to say about yeah. after that it was just just wow just wow um the hospital also after presenting this report also completely against the recommendations of other psychiatrists released kemper back into the care of his mother clarnell no yep no so no man no right back into the bad situation like you said if he would have just stayed where he was and just contributed the way he was contributing he didn't like need to be out in the world he found his purpose in there and he was working on it and they said nope go back out into life and as we see it just it doesn't go well no because if it had gone well the, the episode would be, be over. The, uh, yeah, he that would wouldn't be, be known be like, as wow. co-ed killer Ed Kemper. He would be known as, man, that guy, he had, a, he had a real rough patch. Record expunged, though, cured of schizophrenia. Model citizen. Model citizen, yeah. No, but that is just that is just not the way it went. No. Um, but, like I said, it's, it's not... He did try to do some right. So, in accordance with his parole requirements, Kemper did begin to attend community college while living with his mother in Santa Cruz, California. Um, and get this, like we're saying, he needed purpose, he wanted structure. He really hoped to eventually become a state trooper. Yeah. That was his goal. All he right. wanted to be in law enforcement. He was like, I can make a real difference, and I would love to do this. Y- you know? Um, sure. But, again, thankfully, unthankfully, I don't really know he would actually be rejected specifically just because of his massive stature. They told him that you are too intimidating to be a cop. They told him he was too intimidating to be a cop? I don't know if that's an actual quote, but I feel like that was said. This, it's so Clyde Barrow. I can't think of another reason why, like, you could, he he could pass, like, the physical test and stuff like that, but why, why would his height be that reason if it was not for just, like, hey, we don't think that you could, you wouldn't look good as a cop. <sighs> the Clyde Barrow of it all, you know? Like, wanting to, to join the military, wanting to be, an, like, an upstanding citizen, and then just yeah. for a physical reason, being like, no, no. Yeah. yeah. And Literally, <sighs> at this point, he was 6'9", and he was 300 pounds, I, I, I mean, if you look at pictures of him at the time, like, he wasn't, like, he was not an out-of-shape person. He was just a tall, skinny yeah, guy. The, I think he really could have passed any physical. I really think the reason was is he was just too intimidating, and I think that they didn't want to have him on the force. I, you know, I, I, I would probably wager a guess that, you know, they, he, his record, of course, was expunged, but I'm sure people knew. Or maybe the, the person who just happened to be looking at applications that day was having a really shitty day and they were like you know what i have a i i don't feel like admitting this six nine person they're taller than me by at least yeah, tall people have hurt me before tall people have hurt me before and i as a tall person i would agree <laughs> yeah, they've had it they've had it too good for too long yeah this one gotta, pers- gotta take you down a peg the taller you are the harder you fall <laughs> That's that I think is the more likely scenario. I think you, you nailed it with that. Honestly, that's a good theory. Yeah. Um, and, and like we said before, so this this size, this was a very notable feature of him. It did lead him to have the nickname Big Ed among his peers, which because of him trying to become a police officer and everything else, his peers included local law enforcement, the 
local Santa Fe. He's hanging out with the boys. Um, So, yeah, he would actually end up being a a regular. He would frequent this bar called the Jury Room, which coincidentally was the hotspot for local law enforcement, where he would go all the time and just hang out with all his cop buddies and just have a drink and have a gaff and laugh and it's great. Sure, yeah. The best place to hide is amongst in plain sight. sight. Man, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. He he really did get close with uh, police officers and it, it got so like apparently one of them even ended up giving him his training school badge and his handcuffs while another officer it was reported even let him borrow a gun. Oh? So, I mean, like, he was real close with these guys, and they were just, they, they liked Big Ed. They were like, yeah, there he is, there's Big Ed. Can you imagine explaining I, that I, to I your... I gave that guy my gun. Can you imagine explaining that to your senior officer, like, hey, uh, Officer Billy, what happened to your gun? Gave it to Big Ed. Ah, all right. Hey. No problem. Officer no Joe, problem. where are your handcuffs and your training badge? Oh, Big Ed's got them. All right. Well, yeah, we, we like Big Ed, so no harm can happen there. It's... It's the truth. That's what happened. I really do wonder if they knew, because like they said that I think I think his criminal record was expunged, right? Like, I, it, it comes back into play later, where he, some, a bulletin gets put out because of his record. So I don't know how much, yeah, it actually was expunged. I think I, I, I thought the same thing when I read that. I was kind of like, okay, so he really was coming out on a, a clean slate, but it, it does come back to bite him later. So I wasn't, I don't really know. I don't know yeah, like how California records were kept at the time or just maybe part of it, like the details of it were not available. And it was just like, he had killed someone, but there was no, I don't, I don't know. I really don't. That was something I couldn't find. Yeah. Oh, so this is all happening in California. I thought they went back to Montana with, with his, with his mom. But did they, did she move to California as well? She did. I did. Yeah. Sorry. I, I should have said that. She's now living in Santa Fe, California. Mm-hmm. During the time that he was incarcerated, she actually did get married again. She got remarried, oh. um, but she was divorced. She was divorced again by the time he got out. Oh. So she was just kind of like whipping through husbands. Sure. Um, yeah. So she, she already, you know, married, divorced again, moved back to California. And at the time, I think at this time, I don't know exactly when she got the position, but she was working at um, the university in Santa Fe. Okay. Yeah. I knew she was working at a university, but I couldn't remember. I just, I know, I don't know when she actually got that job. I didn't see like a specific date of her like starting, but I think, I think she already was employed there when he got out from my understanding. If I'm wrong, someone correct me. I would love, I'd love if you did. Yeah. We'll find out in the recap. Yeah. Ed was pretty popular among his peers as in law enforcement, even though he wasn't law enforcement. Uh, but he even had a car that like resembled the police cruiser too, which like he really like just was trying to be it's, one without kind of just one. like further hammers down. Like why didn't he get in? I really, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not making that decision, but I don't know if I, it's probably Maybe, better than he did uh, yeah. it might, it, it, it probably would, I don't know. It's like that Ashal could have been like the reform that he needed. Cause I mean, is he, or he could have abused his power and killed even more. It's maybe. I guess it depends. Like, is he? Does he have a job currently, or is he just living with his mom? Because if I feel like if he had income and he had enough to get a, get out, if he had the tools to get out of the situation that he needed, maybe that would have done some good. I guess you're just gonna have to find out, aren't we? I guess. <laughs> I guess we are. So. Um. I guess. <laughs> One of the other things Ed did have going on, before we get into his his professional life, in his personal life, one of the other things he actually did have going on, he confided in a drinking buddy that he'd become engaged. 
Um, very little is actually known about her, as she had never actually gone public with her name and story and everything. Um, yeah, fair. Yeah, but it is it is kind of known that she was from the Central Valley Town area. Um, she was small. She was blonde. She was young. She was reportedly between the ages of 16 and 18. I think uh, the name Martha was floated around, but it was never confirmed. Oh my god. So... Uh, uh, I, but in, in a weird, like, that's the 60s, baby! Yeah, he's the 21-year-old guy, and he is engaged, fianced to a either 16 or an 18-year-old. Like, that's... It's interesting, so... Yeah, but I mean, like, Bonnie Parker was married at 15. It's... Yeah. Ed is not a guy we want married, though, because Ed also made a comment to this same drinking buddy that said, quote, a man would be a fool to marry a woman smarter than himself. Luckily, Kemper never got the chance to actually marry this girl, so it all worked out. Because she was smarter than him. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I, what a, what a quote. Checkmate, Ed Kemper. Uh What a guy. That's the 60s, baby. Yeah. Actually, that's the 50s in prison, baby. (laughs) Right? Um, He later would tell investigators that he really did, like, almost worship her in, like, an almost religious way. And that they actually never even engaged in a sexual relationship. So, in fact, he claimed that he had, had only had normal sexual intercourse once with a woman who subsequently rejected him when he approached her for a second time. Um, but then later on, he also said on occasions that he never had normal relations with a woman. And again, he frequently attempted intercourse with women, but he was never actually able to reach climax. Right. So, okay. a little more so, personal, but I, I, I think it's one of those things that you kind of need to know because it really paints the picture of yeah, who we're dealing and with. It, I think it really, uh, like, it, it's fuel to the fire. It's like, I, the women in my life so far have been awful. They've been emasculating, awful. He's trying yeah. to find something different. And yeah, he's trying to connect with females in another way, the like the the quote-unquote correct way. Yep. And he is being rejected. He's being rejected, or his own body is just not like responding to these 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 situations where like that's even more emasculating. I think for a lot of men, where like yeah, and that could be it could be a cycle where it's like rejected once meant that inability to perform which means more rejection which means further inability to perform which is it's just exactly so i think it really that that was a a common thing that was a little bit of a a thing going on in the background there but um yeah no while going to school uh like you had mentioned earlier ed would also take on a variety of different jobs so he was doing stuff Okay. He was doing he was doing stuff with his time. Um, eventually, he would actually land a position within the Department of Transportation in 1971. So she actually had a a good job, like a, working for the government or for the state at least. Um, yeah. But when he uh, eventually saved enough money, Kemper did also move out with a friend out to Almeida. So they moved okay. out into an apartment. So the minute he pretty much got the opportunity, he was like, "Awesome! I got a job. I got money, and I got freedom away from my mother." Yeah, that's that's really what he needs. He needs to be away from all of that yeah so uh that that was good for him but again unfortunately real life happened that same year he would end up getting struck by a car while out riding his motorcycle um his arm would be very badly injured leaving him unable to work he would receive a fifteen thousand dollar settlement in the civil suit that he filed against the car's driver but again it did it was a bad injury it left him unable to work and 
Kemper's mind began to linger back to dark places the minute he was unable to work. Yeah. He started to notice a rather large number of young women hitchhiking in the area. And you know what they say, idols, idle hands are the devil's playground. Yeah. Yes, they are. Oh, Eddie Kemper boy. Yeah, sick, sick fuck. Yeah. So I think you were kind of spot on. If he had maybe found some uh, career that he really could have just been passionate about for the rest of his life, maybe that would have been enough to keep his very intellectual mind satisfied. But that was like constantly taken away from him. And he had, like, he just had nothing to, I think, like, positively focus on from a very young age. He had no role models. He had no, no goals. He had no ambitions. He was not. I don't know. He had nothing to, to focus his attention and his hands on, and that was a problem for him. Yeah, I think the, 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 I think my personal opinion is I think the best case scenario would have been he stayed in prison for his whole life for killing his grandparents. Exactly. That would have been best case scenario. Is like he he committed a double murder. Like one is bad enough. Two is like who? And then they're yeah. family of all things. Like he may have been fifteen, but like murder, murder be murder. Murder be. And murder. if he had stayed in prison his whole life, I think he would have thrived in prison. Yeah. He would have been a big Ed would have been great in prison, but he was released and he was put back in an, in an unfamiliar environment with people he didn't like, people he couldn't connect with, people he couldn't play in the system. Yeah. So, people, like you said, I think he liked feeling like some sort of like importance and superiority with people. So, like when he was like in these situations where like people are like, "Good job!" Like you're you're contributing, like you're doing things. Like Big Ed, he was being like revered for that kind of stuff. Like that that probably felt good. And it's the only time he probably ever felt that. And so you yeah. said he goes out into the real world and he gets his job taken away. He's got nothing to like be proud. I don't know. Like it's just yeah, it's a really it bad was... bad situation. No, and it really does feel like this. The universe was against him in yeah. every in every way, shape, form. No matter whenever he had like a silver lining of of an improvement, life came at him, yeah. and it was just yeah. It's again, I'm not I'm not throwing that sympathy card out there, but it is. It's hard to not feel a little bad because you're like, man, like he yeah. he did try to pull himself together a few times, and he was told yeah. no, nope, stop that. I, 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 it, yeah, I think best case scenario, he wouldn't have been given the chance to yeah. pull himself together like this. He should have stayed in prison. Yeah. Because he committed up. a double murder. Straight up. He like, did. he is a murderer. Yeah. That flat out. If he had to be released, if he had to be, he needed to not be here. Yeah, he needed to be in a very structured environment away from his mother. And that yeah. is exactly the opposite of what happened. He yeah. went straight back with his mom. His structured environment fell apart. And again, he starts having these dark fantasies, and that's, like I said, when he really started to kind of notice, wow, look at all these young girls out here hitchhiking. So um, at first, when he actually did start picking up female hitchhikers, he would actually let them go. It was kind of like a trial and error. Can I even get like a woman to get in my car, I feel like? It was kind of just yeah, that. Can I get a woman to trust me to be in a vehicle with me? Yeah, and I mean, he, he did several times. There was so many people that he picked up and dropped them off perfectly safe and sound can you imagine um, being one of those women where like you were one of the early ones where you took a ride from ed kemper he dropped you off you parted ways and then you find out later what happens i it would be chilling to say the least there's a few of those instances here where we'll talk i, I put them towards the end going back and looking back of things his sister said of things other people said throughout his life where it's like that is like chilling foreshadowing oh my god yeah didn't oh want god. to give too much away 
Yes. But Sorry, I keep derailing. <laughs> no, you're perfectly fine. You, there's a lot of questions. I appreciate you asking because they're really like the further we get in, you're only going to have more questions. Yeah, Ed so. Kemper's a doozy of a case. He is. That's why psychologists and psychiatric people wanted to talk to him so much. They're like, yeah. let us into that head of yours. Like, what is what the heck is going on? Yeah. It's it's you want to understand why. Like, you want to f- put a reason to it so you can try to understand because having it be this just grisly unknown is not doesn't just sit well in your brain it doesn't you need you need a reason why yeah so and sometimes there is none and sometimes there is none um yeah so noticing all these people in the area and finding that he could get women into his car his murderous desires were building back up and he decided to pack his car with all the tools that he would need to fulfill those desires including a gun a knife handcuffs and as we'll see tape and a few other things uh, he was ready to go so he built a murder kit he, he, built a he murder did kit. little little 1950s murder kit do you think he used state trooper gun and handcuff i do you think don't know I, I don't know where else he got handcuffs. I mean, I guess there's places you can get them, but... Um, just the fact that you mentioned specifically earlier that he, like, state troopers would just lend him stuff. And I'm sure yeah. it would have been much easier to get a replacement set of handcuffs than a, than a gun. I'm sure it was really yeah. easy to get a gun. This was the 60s. This is the it, 70s. It was almost too easy, yeah. Yeah, but, like, handcuffs, I feel like, is a little bit harder. So, I'm like, I wonder... I wonder if he borrowed tools, used them, used them. and gave them back. He disposes a lot of his things. He, because of him wanting to be a cop, because of his knowledge of all these things, he did plan ahead on a lot of these things, and he got rid of a lot of evidence very efficiently. Yeah. He was really good at making sure he didn't yeah. get caught. Nobody, nobody suspected him. For the most part. But then he made some really dumb mistakes, too, that you're going to be like, what the heck, Ed? Like, how, yeah. did, how did you even make it past this? Because you're that dumb. Like, it's it's crazy, the dichotomy here, that you'll see both sides. It's a classic um, Bonnie and Clyde moment. There are a few of them, yes. Oh. Um, so, like I said, he built up his murder kit, finally built up his courage, you want to call it. And on May 7th, 1972, once again, a date we know nothing good is going to happen. He offered a ride to two students by the names of Mary Ann Pesci and Anita Lucessa. Lucessa. I I hope I am saying their names right. Uh, Kemper picked up the two girls in Berkeley and they asked to be dropped off at Stanford University. They headed out on their way and without alerting the passengers that he changed directions from where they wanted to go, he managed to drive out an hour into a secluded area. Wow. All the while, they just are kind of talking and they just have no idea that this is happening until they're kind of there and they're like, hey, this isn't Stanford University. Um, so he managed to reach the secluded area near Almeida with which he was familiar with just because of the work that he had done in the highway department. So that's kind of how he knew about these like really secluded areas and also how he knew the highway system so well because in California, it's pretty confusing. So that's how he also managed to trick them was like, oh, I'll just take this exit. I'll end up on this freeway. Don't worry. I know where I'm going. I work for the highway department. I know this is a back road. I'll take you. So I'm sure that was really easy to like talk himself. Oh, 100%. The California road system is mind-boggling. It's And if you're an out-of-stater, it's it's... Oh my god, I could only imagine, like, yeah, I guess I believe you. Yeah, and he he was a very confident, charismatic, he presented himself well, and he's like, I, I work for the, the highway department, I know where we're going, and reassured them until they were out in the middle of nowhere. 
and it was there that he then handcuffed uh, Pesce and locked Lucessa in the trunk. He would then stab and strangle Pesce to death, subsequently killing Lucessa in the similar manner. Kemper would put the bodies of both women in his trunk and would begin to drive home. And this is what one of those first moments where you're like, what the heck? Wait, he he drove the he didn't like he didn't dump the body no. in the isolated No. Oh my god. He throws him in the back of the trunk. He's not done yet. But guess okay. what? During his drive, Kemper was actually stopped by a police officer for having a broken taillight. Oh my god. So he's got two bodies in the trunk, and he's starting to get pulled over by the cops. I am sure his heart was pounding. And he's going, what the fuck? Yeah. Good evening, officer. What yeah. seems to be the what? problem? Th- that is, I'm sure, exactly how the conversation went. And he used his charisma and his relationship with the local police department to just get let go. They just said, hey, yeah, just get that taken care of when you get the chance, man. Peace out, Big Ed. Have a great night. Can, and- you, imagine, can you imagine a cop coming up to your... Like, You've got two bodies in the back. I can't, no. A cop a cop approaches you and is like, do you know there's a problem with the back of your car? You're probably thinking, oh god, there's a hand dangling out. Did I is there a bloody <laughs> handprint? Is there something? Like what what Yeah, like I have left horrible incriminate and he's like What do you mean, officer? Your yeah. taillights out, buddy. <laughs> like, oh, whoops, that, I'll get that sorted right. Please don't look over yeah, there. Is that all? Okay. Yeah, thank you. So he gives him, you know, a little fix-it ticket and sends him on his way. No problem. Kemper was allowed to return home without incident after murdering these two women. Is he still in the apartment with his friend? He is, yes. So he luckily returned home and his roommate was also not home. So oh he just has free reign of the apartment. And this is also where we are going to have another trigger warning because... Yeah, it doesn't get good from here. So um, we're going to give a trigger warning for necrophilia at this point. If this doesn't totally give away what's about to happen, if you want to come back after that, please let me know. There's also a little bit of graphic description of um, violence in this. So again, go ahead and skip it. We'll see you in a bit, skippers. (laughs) We'll see you in a bit. Um, So with the house to himself, he took both the bodies into his apartment where he photographed them and had sexual intercourse with the naked corpses before dismembering them. He placed the body parts into plastic bags, and he would later abandon them near Loma Prieta Mountain uh, before disposing of the girls' severed heads, specifically in a ravine. Uh, He would specifically engage in sexual conduct with both of them. That was part of his MO, as we will see. That's something that he will... That's... Yeah. So... Vile. Absolutely. Just, Just vile. Just vile, vile... Horrible. Yeah, man. It's it, it's not only like, killing in and of itself is already such a horrible thing, but that just it like to me is just like adding like like just so much disrespect on top of it. It, it is. It's, ju- it's, it's just like it's just such a disgusting thing of like I don't yeah. know. I it, it's that it, it does it bothers you a little. Yeah, it, it, we've we've talked about this before. Just because somebody's dead doesn't mean they stop being a person. And and. Yeah. No, Ed has a really good time of separating himself from people. He yeah. has a way of once not even not even bef- like before they're dead, like he he will look at people just as like objects. Yeah. And that's something it's... that is noted time and time again in his interviews is just the way that he talks. I don't even think he's aware of it to be honest yeah. with you of how much he dehumanizes humans. I wouldn't be surprised. I think you have to if you were you're a serial killer. I think you you you've got to I mean, if you don't, like, whew, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But, like, just disassociation from 
I am committing an act against a person. Yeah. And this is a person, and I am just, oh, it's it's just awful. Yeah. Ugh, Ed Kemper. And this, this goes back to, we were talking before, like, women who were alive were in some way not able to actually satisfy him. This was his way of getting off. Yeah. There was a sexual component to this that he, in some way, quote-unquote, needed in order to fulfill that desire in him. Yeah, I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer is, like, pretty similar. It was that kind of, like, I didn't like people being alive. Yeah. His preferred sexual partner was corpse-like. Exactly. Like because then there's no rejection, right? There's no there's no risk yeah. of rejection. It's... Yeah, it's I, like I don't he know. just we just wanted them to lie there. Like when he would hire, I think if, if I'm remembering correctly, like he, Jeffrey Dahmer would hire sex workers and he would like give them instructions to like lie there. That's crazy. And, and like act like, like you're dead. Yeah, like do not resist. Like don't don't do anything. And that that does it for them. It's that I think it's like it's total control, right? That's yeah. like like there's nothing. It's just it's so it's just gross. It's just yeah. gross. It is so. But that is the end of the, the description there. So if you're coming back to greet us again, welcome back, listeners. Hi. Um, so good to see you. Yeah. Come often. <laughs> so the girls obviously never reached their intended destination, and it did not take long for their families to report them missing. Um, yeah. But nothing was known until three months later on August 15th when a female head was discovered in the woods. The head would later be identified as the skull of Marianne Pesce. But Anita Luchessa's remains would never be found. An extensive really? search was also conducted for the rest of their remains, but nothing was ever found either. Oh he my was God. so efficient at getting rid of evidence and of hiding bodies. He that was all that was ever found. Yeah. Jeez, especially in the wilderness. Animals and mm-hmm. all sorts. And, I, and I, I don't know, I don't remember if I actually put this quote in here later, but I, he describes very specifically how meticulous he was with like he didn't dispose of any of the body parts in the same place every hand went here the head went here the torso went here the legs and feet went there like he made so sure yeah because he knew he was friends with local cops i'm sure they came home and were like hey yeah look at this dumb criminal did this and he's like well i'm not gonna make that mistake a hundred percent. I'm like, he's hanging out with the state troopers. He's hanging out with the cops. He's like, they're they're swapping like buddy buddy stories of their days in this bar. He's taking he's mental like, notes. Like, yeah, he's time. just like, can you say that again for me? Like, yeah, let me literally, just, just a little it. slower. Because I, yeah, yeah, like that's. And he did what now? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Oh, so Ugh. it it unfortunately it did not take Kemper too long to strike again. I think the confidence of having this happen and then 3 months go by and no one even finding anything, I think that kind of boosted his confidence from his first kill. Oh, yeah. He got I'm away sure. with it and he was ready to strike again. So, that same year on September 14th, 15-year-old Aiko Koo had decided to hitchhike after missing her bus to take her, to take her to dance class. Oh, that's so So this tragic. was literally it's one of the most tragic ones and it's like the definition of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. She had oh just missed God. her bus. I mean, I, I was talking to my husband about this. I'm like, could you imagine like being the bus driver that like, you've seen it before. They'll just like, someone's running up and they run away. And I'm like, could you imagine like she was, she just missed her bus and she just yeah. decided, you know what? I'll just hitchhike this one time. Just this one yeah. time. Oh my but God. That's so sad. It, it's so tragic. Unfortunately, Kemper would be the one to pick her up. 
and just like before, uh, he tried to take advantage of the complicated highway system to confuse her and take her out to a remote area. However, Eiko realized what was happening, and she actually began to scream and beg almost immediately. She was like, please don't take me out in the middle of nowhere. I don't, don't, whatever. Kemper pulled a gun on her and tried to calm her down by swearing that he actually didn't want to hurt her and he actually wanted to kill himself and he just really needed someone to talk to. He's pointing a gun at her, being he, like, I'm not gonna hurt you! Yeah. So. Oh my god. It said that he was left-handed, so he's driving, pulls the gun with her on the other side, and, and is holding up to her ribcage and just going, I don't want to hurt you, I am just, I'm suicidal myself, and I just need someone to talk to, I just need a friend. I'm a 21-year-old man, and I would just love if my friend could be this 15-year-old girl. Blah. Oh just disgusting. Uh, it's, it's hideous. You don't, you don't say, I don't want to hurt you when you have a gun to somebody's ribs. It was That's so... That's the point. Oh yeah, it's just crazy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, somehow, I mean, whether, whether she actually believed him or not, she went along with this. Probably out of desperation of just going, like, he is going to shoot me, so I might as well just say, yeah, I'm good, I'm not going to run. I, I, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt in the situation, but somehow through this coercion, he also managed to convince her to be tied and gagged. So he, he said to her, I just want a quiet place where we can tie you up and then we'll go to my place and we'll talk. Oh After he God. made his way off the highway and onto a desolate road, Kemper parked the car and shoved the gun under the front seat. He then asked the girl for a roll of medical tape that he had in his glove box, which she handed to him. He would proceed to put tape over her mouth and then told her to get into the back seat, um, which she also did. He then takes the tape and steps out of the car. And this is another one of those dumb moments where, get this, he actually locked himself out of the car. Oh. The, gun, the gun's under the seat. He's standing outside the car. She's in the car. Her hands are tied, or her mouth's covered. But I mean, at this point, like... Oh my god! <laughs> it's uh, it's mind numbing. He it's starts like going like you know slapping his pants, like looking for his keys, and from his own recounts, I don't know how accurate this is. She looked up to him and kind of laughed, like that he was like funny that he forgot his keys, and she unlocked the car door and she let him back inside. I think that says a lot about his charisma. It, it like. Like just being able to disarm this poor girl, and she's fifteen, she's, and he's yeah. twenty-one. He's six years older than her, and like this is also like this is this this is the seventies now, right? We're we're yeah. in the seventies. Like you're told, like you know, like respect your elders. You oh know? yeah. Like, and this guy is like, I need help. Like I'm just a bit weird, but I need help. I'm, I'm sh like I'm sure he's charming. He's tall. I, I, maybe he was handsome. I'm sure it was very disarming, and like. I, clear, I don't know how he could have gotten through the situation without, like you said, having that. There's something yeah. he's got that X factor. Clearly, law enforcement liked him. His victims liked him. Like there, there, there was clearly something that we yeah. we haven't met him. We just don't know. Yeah. But there was we, clearly some charm that he had. He had some sort of control. He had a really good way of demanding control. He certainly did. Yeah. Somehow, you using his charm, he gets let back into the car, but. Once actually back inside the car, it, it was pretty extreme from there. He proceeded to choke her unconscious, sexually assault her, and then ultimately murder her. her. He subsequently placed her body in the trunk, and instead of heading straight home this time, 
Kemper actually decided, hey, I worked up a pretty good sweat right there killing this person. I need to go wet my whistle. I'm gonna stop off at the old watering hole. Stops at a bar on the way home. My... Please don't tell me it was State Trooper Bar. It wasn't actually stated which bar he went to. It just said a bar. Oh, but my God. I don't know how many bars he's frequenting. But I mean, this is California. They're, they're, they can, they're around. They're around, There yeah. are bars. It didn't actually... <laughs> there are bars in California. I, there's lots of bars, yeah. No, it didn't actually say. I was wondering the same thing, if it was that one. It wasn't confirmed. It's all up to his testimony where he went afterward. He just said a bar. Yeah. Um... But after that, if that wasn't enough to make your stomach twist, he later recalled in an interview that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, quote unquote, both to check that she was really dead and also to savor my triumph, to admire my work and her beauty, a little like a fisherman happy with his catch. Ah, oh, shut the fuck up, Kemper. Just disgusting, right? Uh, like... like- Yep. You know, shut the fuck up, Kemper. Yeah, that's, 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 that's it. That's just, the tagline of this stop. episode. <laughs> yeah. He he talks a lot, and I think it's too much, to be honest. That's why I really tried to limit my quoting of him in this, because I'm like, I, he's not the star of this episode. No. Like, as much as we're talking about him, we're talking about the ramifications of what he did, and we're, we're highlighting the lives of his victims. But yeah. I did not want to make him, like, the star of this. I did not want to make it seem like I'm glorifying him. He's a disgusting person. He is. And needs to be treated as such. Yes, 100%. The sympathy card is out of the window. We were allowed to feel bad for Baby Kemper. He, he is, he is not a sympathy card. He's far above. No, yeah. this is a shut the fuck up Kemper moment. This is, yep. Yeah. So, after that, he headed back to his apartment where he repeated the same process that he had done before. Um, and Kemper would later give details in his own words. This is one thing I did want to put in here, actually, because it just like we were talking about earlier it's kind of chilling how he recounts this event it shows just how normal this process was for him and even this is one of those quotes where it shows you that he does not see this as a person that he's talking about so he says i kill her on a thursday night the next morning i call in sick at work i dismember her body on friday night i get rid of the corpse keeping the head and hands which are easily identifiable Saturday morning, I leave home, taking them with me. I am looking for a safe place to bury them. It's not easy to get rid of these things. It's not easy to get rid of these things. These things. This is not a person. These things. Many times, I came close to getting caught burying the bodies, and if a corpse is discovered, the witness can remember any car parked nearby. Saturday morning, I visit my psychiatrist in Fresno, and in the afternoon, I see another one. Saturday night, I'm with my fiancé and her family in Turlock. And Sunday night, I return home. So he's just, like, this murder's just happening mixed in. He's, like, filing it away. He's like, okay, so Sunday night I have dinner with my fiancé's parents. So, like, I can murder here, bury the body this day. If I just call out to work this day, it'll all plan out fine. I I, I could almost imagine him writing this in, like, a diary. In a calendar, yeah. yeah. like, he's like, okay, I can, like, I, it's like he's, like, is on the phone with his with fiancé. And just like, oh, can you meet up on Thursday? He's like, actually, no, I've got a really big important, uh, appointment uh, burying a body. Can I meet you on Sunday for dinner with your family? She's like, uh, you know, actually, yeah. yeah, like, that works. Like, yeah, yeah. like, have fun. And it's just like, man, man, oh man. It, but yeah, it's 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 daily routine now. It's just like Thursday, kill. Friday, uh, call out of work. Uh, get rid of the evidence. Saturday, go to the bar, hang out with Judd. Sunday, dinner with fiance. Literally, and and again, just him saying it's not easy to get rid of these things. Yeah. It just, there. She is not a thing. Holy shit. She yeah, is not a shit. thing. Not at all. So, uh, 
Aiko's mother was very quick to contact authorities about the disappearance of her daughter, and she would scour the town, putting up hundreds of flyers asking for information about what had happened to her poor daughter. My heart. It, this this one actually really did get. She's fifteen. Like yeah. it's. She's she's a kid. She's just yeah. a kid. Yeah. Um, as we know, her mom did not receive any responses about what had happened, and no one would actually know the fate of Aiko until years later. Years, man. Oh, that's it's so heartbreaking. It really, really is. This and like this was this this could have been prevented if he had just stayed in prison. Yeah, he just, it literally, yeah. it's so much needless violence because someone would just needed that that gold star. Look, we rehabilitated this killer. Yeah, was it that important, guys? No, like, come on. Oh man. And this, I, I, I would say, like, it's only his second offense. I mean, he we killed his grandparents. He killed the other two girls, and I mean, this is his only like his second time actually setting out with the intention to kill. And yeah. this is how efficient he is. Yeah. That's also very chilling. I, yeah, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It doesn't it make you wonder. Like, did he have practice in other regards? Yeah. Like, what did he like you said do to like? Did he have dry runs? Yeah. Did he go out and simulate this somehow when he was like ready to go? Because yeah. he was really good at it, really quickly. Even making the dumb mistakes, getting pulled over, getting locked out of his car, like it, it does make you wonder, and it does, and it, and and we'll never know. Actually, we might and know because he's still alive. We might know, but that's that's true. Actually, this is one of those ones where we might know one day. We but might know. Could we even take his word on it if he, if he tells us? Like, yeah, I don't know. The more the more he speaks, the more I just want to say, shut up, Kemper. Shut the fuck up, yeah. Kemper. Yeah, it's not great. So the killings continued. Um, in 1973, Kemper was forced to move back with his mother, but he did not let that stop him. Like I said, Kemper continued to act on his murderous impulses. Did it say why he had to move back in with his mother? I think due to money issues. I think at this point he wasn't working. He had that settlement from before, but yeah. I think he was slowly running out of money and he wasn't able to work. And he had hobbies that kind of kept up a lot of his time, yeah, so he's I don't think out. he maintained a steady job. <laughs> he's calling out sick a lot, isn't he? Yeah. I think, I think it was due to money or I mean maybe his roommate was like I don't know you're kind of acting funny yeah. or, I, I don't know I, I don't actually know I would suspect the roommate comes home and he's like man the apartment smells weird huh yeah it almost smells yeah. like something died in here and he's like no they didn't right. die in here <laughs> right, yeah let me love, excuse you yeah like hang right. on <laughs> no I made sure of that oh my god like Kemper stupid yeah. so for whatever reason uh, 1973 forced back to move in with his mom which as we know, is not a good thing. No. They were not. They should not be under the same roof. These two individuals, no. and yet, time and time again, this is the third time that they are being put under the same roof. Yeah, this is <sighs> this is basically like how do we how do we add more shit to the, this fucking hot pot? Just bring in the mother. Yeah, literally. Yeah, how can we make this worse? It's like so. a telenovela. It's like how can we make the drama worse? Bring in the mother. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, it, it really is. Someone was writing the script. The directors were like, let's do it. We want the drama. Yes. Fuck. Wow. Yeah. Um, his next victim uh, was named Cindy Shaw. And this one was a little different. He just shot and killed her. While his mother was away, Kemper went to her home and hid Cindy's body in his room. He still had no problem bringing him home. He brought it home to his mom's house. He's like, she's away. She won't notice. Was she a hitchhiker as well? Or did, like, he just invite her over? Or did he go to her house? 
I believe that she was another hitchhiker got in the car, but this time there was no, like, going out to any secluded area. I'm pretty sure he just shot her, and it was... In his home. That was... I not, w- not in the home, but in the car. I wonder, though. I wonder if that was another, like, fuck you, mom moment. Yeah, bringing her back to the house. I don't know. But, yeah, he hid her in the room, uh, and then would go on to dismember her corpse as well, and the following day threw several parts of it into the ocean. Um, but that is really not the best thing to do with body parts, because over the next several days, Cindy's body parts were washing up on shore, Yeah, and they were discovered pretty quickly. Um, so it was at that time that he decided to actually bury Cindy's head in his mother's backyard. This is the this, sloppiest one by far. This is so this one, sloppy. Yeah. This one was... It was different. I, I don't know why he decided to go different with this one. He hadn't shot... I mean, other than his grandparents, he hadn't really, like... Yeah. I don't know. It's don't know. it's so strange. It's it's almost out of character in a, in a really awful way. It's, yeah. This one was this one was different. This one this one um, feels like it has more emotion behind it. And I wonder if it's I it, wondered that too. He kept the head and buried it. He specifically actually said that he positioned her head facing his room when he buried it. So it felt a little personal the way that like he yeah. wanted her to like be watching him. I don't know if they had known each other prior. Maybe she reminded him of his of his mother. And that's no fault of her own. Like that's that's between him and his mother. But I wonder, maybe yeah. she, did she look like his mother, or maybe she said something that his mother said, and it just kind of. And he's already heightened because he's moving back into this environment. But yeah. this is this is very, very different. Very different. It's very it's very unnerving. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. All right, and that's where we are going to call the end of part one. Excuse me. I you <laughs> you're you're gonna end it there, ma'am. We have a lot to get through, and we're only halfway done. We gotta end it here so we can pick back up oh. on a good spot. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, all right, all right. I'm not, well, I'm like I'm not happy about it, but I get to listen to the next part immediately. So like, exactly, it'll yeah. all be okay. Just give it five minutes. <laughs> just give it. I just gotta wait five minutes. But sorry, you everybody. You gotta wait a week. Yeah, you gotta wait a week. So <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It's my first time having to wait a whole five minutes it, for the next one. It doesn't feel good, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's my bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did it to you four times. Four times. <laughs> it's been a traumatic a, season one. Oh, but Matt, I can't believe we're doing Ed Kemper as well. Like, that's so cool. We're, it's our first serial killer. Like, and it's such a fuckwit of a serial killer. I know. And really, this this one could fit into so many different categories. I'm, I'm happy to put it into a high-profile case just because of the major cultural impacts that it had. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah. this is a, a great one to do my first two-parter on. I can't think of a better case because this really just has so much information in it. So if you guys it, enjoyed it really listening to part one, you're, I think, probably going to enjoy listening to part two even more because it kind of wraps everything up. I I would agree. I I kind of know Ed Kemper. I kind of know how it ends. Yeah, and it's a doozy. So part if you if you like part one, if you thought part one was outrageous and astronomical, just wait. Just wait. Just wait, because Ed Kemper is the type of motherfucker who likes to end on a high note, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's a good way to kinda. put it. <laughs> like you said, it's sure. It's not going to end on a low note. Like I mean, it's not. It's it's going out with a bang, kind of. You know. Yeah, not a whimper, but a bang. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to share with you part two. But until then, Lady, do you want to tell them where they can find us? I sure can. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Spookery Podcast. 
And you can find us on YouTube at Spook Group Podcast. You sure can. And once you get done listening to those episodes or looking at our social media, if you want to send us an email, you can do that at spookrepodcast at gmail.com. There, you sure can. You can send us whatever. Please send us stories, reviews, personal accounts, if you have questions, corrections, any of the above. But as always, we ask that you be kind. Yes, please be kind. But uh, we are also actively working on our season finale recap we're collecting corrections stories additions so if you guys have been listening to our episodes and you have things that you want to add questions you wanted to ask please send them our way now because this is prime time where we are actively working on notes and things we can talk about during our season recap so send them our way and you know you never know we might actually give you a full-on shout out absolutely yeah send us your bermuda triangle conspiracy theories send us your hinter kaifek you know little when you got your detective hat on and you think you know who solved it tell us who you think the culprit is we we want to know yeah. what you guys think tell us which demons you summoned through the ouija board i'd love Please. to know that yeah tell us if you're the one that set all of the fires yeah have you been haunted by we won't tell fires? anyone probably <laughs> probably <laughs> if it's if... have you talked to your insurance agency about spooky fires <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you guys so much for listening until next time stay spooky Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. We love the synchronized clicks in this house. They're so they're so satisfying. They're so synchronized. <laughs> they're so synchronized. <laughs> oh, that clicks. When they just mm, synchronize, <laughs> synchronize. <laughs> oh my god.